Hi, and welcome back to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. To kick off our new season, we have Aneta Weber with us on the show. Aneta is the EU Special Representative for the Horn of Africa. We've had her on the show previously, but of course not in her current position, so we are extremely pleased to have her back on for what is a wide-ranging discussion on Sudan as well as the rest of the region. Aneta, welcome back. Thank you. So, of course, we want to start off by asking you about the really horrible situation in Sudan. The fighting is now in its fifth month. I've had Sudanese tell me that if this war lasts six months, then it will last six years. I'm wondering just how bad is the situation from your estimation? I think the situation is really, really bad. I think it's a terrible situation because, I mean, we we had, you know, thoughts and and scenarios in, in April in terms of can one side win? Is it going to be a stalemate? Is it disintegrating? Is it going to split? Uh, is it turning into a civil war? And I think we have aspects of all of the above. So we do have a disintegration. We do have aspects of a civil war. We do have potential split of the country. And we don't have a serious recognition by the two belligerent sides that they have to stop. So yes, it's a terrible situation. I think it's getting worse because I think we, we do understand the, you know, the, the regional aspects of the war in Sudan, but of course also the regional dynamics, including the coup belt closing from the Sahel to the Red Sea, where Sudan is key. I want to move pretty quickly, given the benefit we have of having you on the show, to talking about the the mediation landscape um, on Sudan. Obviously, it's been a huge struggle to make progress or traction on peace talks, um, largely, of course, because the parties themselves do not seem uh, interested in negotiating, negotiating on anything remotely similar in terms. But we've also seen a very fragmented response. We have the Jeddah talks facilitated by the Americans and the Saudis. The AU has promised both mediation and a political process, uh, neither of which has has yet to kick off. EGAD has vowed to mediate between the two parties. And then you have the Egyptian-led neighboring states initiative, um, which has also declared it wants to negotiate a ceasefire. What's the best way forward? Oh, that's a good question. I, I'm not so negative on all the initiatives. I think it's good that, that basically everyone is engaged. The attention is on Sudan, even so, you know, the Sahel and, and other places are, are burning. What we see right now is the neighbors, the direct neighbors, those a bit far, have a huge interest in, in playing a role. You know, if you look back during the CPA, we had very similar ruffles between different initiatives. I think what is really necessary right now on a ceasefire negotiation, but of course also on the political uh, process, is that these things are coming together, that these issues will be, you know, that we have a strong lead in coordination to bring these different initiatives together. I think the initiatives in, in themselves, they can, you know, they can bring results. But of course, the worst case scenario would be there is no coordination and then these initiatives go in different directions. So I think my understanding is still that, you know, with the call on the 20th of April, the, the African Union had the buy-in, had huge support by everyone, EGAT, the neighboring states, Egypt, League of Arab States, the UN, everyone. And I think this is the role the AU, the African Union needs to play right now to bring these initiatives together to start the political process. As you know, we've been working very closely with the African Union to have this going. We we had you know some consultations on our side with the political actors, but I think it's right now is really key for the African Union to take their job to to start this lead on uh, on coordinating. And you know on on this, I also believe. The thinking needs to start how to bridge 
let's say, the JEDA process that is a limited process, and both sides made this very clear, it's a limited process focused on humanitarian ceasefire, how to bridge the JEDA process, limited humanitarian ceasefire, a political process, and of course, a ceasefire negotiation between the two belligerents to stop the war. Now, are we there yet? I don't I don't see that, but I think it's really necessary for for one entity to basically bring this big tent. Mm. And can I just press you a bit more in terms of how do you think the best way to, to bridge those different initiatives, a ceasefire process with a political process, what, what do you think might be the best formula? Well, I believe that if the let's say if the if the political landscape if the political actors could come together and also send a strong message to the belligerents because we don't hear the political actors right now we hear them in terms of you know basically in a very similar way than before april 15th talking about their differences or their their overlaps but not sending a strong and clear message to the belligerents to say look we have one topic that unites us despite all the political differences and that one topic is we need you to stop the war we need you and us <laughs> all of us to stop that war and i think that would be extremely important for for the pressure on the belligerents who have narratives right now that they are basically you know protecting their their population and that they're doing this in the name of of the people of sudan we need the people of sudan to be very clear that this is not in their name and to say what they want and how how stopping the war could work i think that is key and therefore i don't believe that you know i think it's it's key to have the political process at the same time and a strong political process at the same time now it's not going to be easy, um, and I think what we what we might see in the coming weeks, you know, basically one side is coming out basically right now. Saf is coming out with the idea of coming back to the sovereign council um, and have you know call for elections. That cannot be a comprehensive approach to the whole country. Again, I believe the AU could play should play this role to bridge all of these aspects, but the political aspect and the political voices are key in this. And one development. We've obviously seen recently is um, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the Sudanese uh, army leader who was more or less trapped inside Khartoum. He has he has escaped and is uh, now on a regional tour. Have have you seen that affect any of the regional diplomatic activity yet? I mean, I think it will it will affect the regional diplomatic activity, but it should affect first and foremost the AU. I think that is key because. What he announced, or what Malik, uh, his, his second in command, announced, is basically, you know, coming back to the sovereign council and, and build a government in with through through the election. My sense is that this is, uh, you know, that, that this is in in line with the with the idea of the Egyptians. Let's see what the Egyptians bring uh, with their side event at the Unga as with the neighboring initiative. I don't think it's yet clear how this is going to translate into Jeddah, because for Jeddah and I think for you know for a comprehensive ceasefire, you do need the other side. Um, you do need RSF. That I have not heard from the SAF position. Where is our? What kind of role is RSF playing in in their idea? Is it that they you know that they're looking for one side that they will govern and then leave the rest to RSF? I think that is not yet clear. So I don't think we are there yet in terms of having regional reactions to the announcement uh, by by Burhan um, on on the next steps. But of course, you know, the logic would be this this should be negotiated in Jeddah with the other side. But I don't see that happening yet. And we know, you know, Jeddah is, is still 
uh, not functional. We don't have the two two delegations uh, on the ground. We don't have uh, the Americans yet on the ground. Um, so I don't see the reaction or the you know the initiatives reacting to this yet. But that would be the logic. Mm. And I know this is a very difficult question to answer, but obviously the two sides have very polarized positions in terms of what a potential settlement could look like. What sort of optimism do you have that they could reach any sort of deal that would look like a ceasefire? I think without the pressure from the, Sudan, uh, from the Sudanese population, the optimism is very small. My optimism is, is yeah, very, very small. Um, I think the, the optimism would grow if it would be clear that there is no more fueling, let's say, support for their positions uh, from outside. Um, but that there would be a much more robust understanding that what they have to do right now is come to negotiate the end of that war. So for this, of course, everyone would have to go in the same direction and the messages would have to be clear from the international community as well as the Sudanese. Um, so I think that that would be the only way to to get them closer to an understanding, you know, how how these next steps post a cease, an immediate ceasefire could look like. You mentioned the African Union needing to to coordinate all the various external actors as they've promised to do. Uh, the EU is part of this core group that was formed among the key external actors, but the AU hasn't convened this core group since June. I'm wondering why and is it is it still an active forum? Um, yeah, we had a meeting of the Secretariat just a couple of weeks back, but um, but the, the core group is an active forum. But of course, I think this is really the crucial time right now to call for a next meeting of the core group. It was envisaged to do this early September. I have not yet heard if, if that is confirmed. Um, but I think the core group is key because it is that big tent. Basically, it, it could show that, you know, the, the AU is is getting in gear to lead that process where we would need to see these different processes to come together. Mm. And you've mentioned, of course, the the regional aspects of the war. One of our fears, and I'm sure one of your fears when this war broke out, is that we, we could quickly see outside actors getting more and more involved in the conflict. How worried are you at this stage that we are slipping towards something that looks like more of a regionalized conflict? I'm, I'm constantly very worried. And I think this is where, you know, the Darfur uh, aspect of this war should not be taken as a localized conflict. It's much more a regionalized conflict. And Darfur, I think that is also important for all of us to understand uh, that we cannot that we cannot just you know go go back to make the same mistakes and think Darfur is is a different country. Darfur is part of Sudan. It it needs to be solved in the in this whole aspect of a, you know comprehensive approach. However, I think it's also important to see the specifics on Darfur, and the specifics on on Darfur is of course a that we already have uh, a huge number of. of political and military actors and therefore that are not necessarily represented neither in Jeddah nor in, in other places, um, but that have very strong regional links. We, we hear, of course, um, about the return of mercenaries and groups uh, from Libya. We hear about the, you know, the massive uh, expulsion and, and movement of, of civilians into Chad, but of course also the Chadian angle in terms of the nervousness of Chad um, you know, to be in that belt of, of coups, uh, the, the instability that, of course, the war in Darfur always brought and brings to Chad. Then the third factor in this, 
Uh, we don't know how the future of uh, the Wagner operations in this region will look like. But of course, if you look into the western front of, or the western side of Sudan, you have uh, you know you have Chad, you have Libya, and you have Kar. And I think this is you know these are all three countries where Wagner is quite uh, influential and has has a lot of power. Uh, I mean, not in Chad, but in, in Kar and, and Libya they had. And I think this is extremely concerning because we see the the regionalization, but of course we also see the regional dynamic playing a role in Sudan, in the conflict in Sudan. Mm. And just on that topic, uh, how, how significant do you see the Wagner role in the conflict thus far in Sudan? I don't think it was that significant. I mean, Wagner didn't play a military role in the conflict in Sudan. And I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's up to be seen. What I think is interesting, uh, the Russian angle in Sudan is that Russia has good relations with both sides. And this is not just Wagner. I mean, rem- you know, remember uh, Hemeti was in, in Moscow when the war, the Russian war of aggression in, in Ukraine started and he gave uh, pro uh, Russian interviews back then. So it's not just Wagner. He didn't only see Prigozhin in, in, back in, in last year in Russia. So I think we, we see both sides in good relations with Russia. That is a big question. What does that mean? Um, you know, if Russia is basically playing both uh, both sides. Um, but of course, the question will be connected to to the Sahel and the, the development in the Sahel. I think Wagner will play a role in, in this whole belt, but much more importantly than Wagner is, of course, the agency of the national leaders um, and, and the agency of continent and the region taking, you know, taking a position and taking a stand. On the topic of Darfur, the reports we're seeing out of Darfur, as you've mentioned, are very harrowing. We don't need to get into all those details, and we've discussed them previously on the podcast. The, the violence is obviously very horrific to, to watch. Of course, the, the best way to prevent you know, worsening carnage in Darfur would be to get a national ceasefire to start stabilizing the situation nationally. But if those ceasefire talks and you know, just broader talks at a national level, if those are not moving forward, is there anything that can be done to improve this situation on Darfur in the meantime? I mean, you know, this is really, this is the, the core question in all wars. What can you do in the absence of a ceasefire? Of course, you can, uh, we, we need to work harder on, on the humanitarian. I think it's also what we see in Darfur, and I think uh, that is a positive sign, that it's not yet turned into a, a civil war in, in the full sense. We still have uh, actors on the ground who are staying out of the fighting, who call call for calm and i think that is something we need to you know we need to look into and support if there are local deals for, for local ceasefires but of course that is that's not going to be enough and as you said it needs a national ceasefire but the national ceasefire also needs to reach those in darfur but at the moment i think the the local ceasefires and the local deals are are extremely important and of course easing the problem for the population inside and and across the border in chat for those um seek refuge in Chad. The European Union has been consulting uh, various civilian actors, civilian leaders as, as part of this process. Civilians in Sudan have obviously had a difficult time fully coming together, not only uh, since the start of this war, but but going back uh, several years to the to the end of the Bashir era. I'm wondering what you're hearing from your conversations um, in terms of possibilities of, of starting to see a wider uh, united political front, and if not political front, at least acceptance of 
common grounds to start something that would look like more of an intra-Sudanese, more inclusive political process about the future of Sudan if the ceasefire talks are, are able to make some progress? I mean, I think this is what we all have to work towards and, and support. I think it's an up and down. I think at the beginning of the war, the, the shock was there and I felt like, okay, there is more understanding that we need to move in one direction right now and the single topical issue would be to stop the war. I think we're back into, you know, the full consensus, everything needs to be cleared and clarified before before you can sit down. And um, the environment, of course, is very, very different. And let's say if there would be deals done amongst the belligerents uh, without a clear signaling by the by a united, a strong united front of the Sudanese, I think they will lose they will lose out. And I think that that is a real risk. So my call to urgency is 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 very clear. But I think in a situation where basically it was, you know, we, the, the Sudanese for the last three, four years started to come um, in in this fear of debating politics uh, in and out of the government. And I think that is what we also see right now. Those who feel that they had been in the government before and they had the right, I mean, in the transitional government um, to lead and those who feel like it's a new dispensation uh, that they need to come in. To me, it's, it's, you know, it's clear we cannot look into a Sudan a political debate based on a full consensus. And it would also be a bit absurd because I don't see the Sudanese from left to right uh, center and uh, to come together and, and have a full agreement on all their political differences. And it's not necessary, but I think where they should have a full agreement on in a, in a larger national front is to stop that war. To get to the next steps, I think, is, of course, import, important, but let's let's take that step first, because the message needs to come from the Sudanese, but it's not going to be a smooth process. And I think it will take even more, you know, meetings, but it also takes their readiness, uh, the civilians' readiness to, to sit in a room with those who they don't consider full Democrats, who they have huge differences with politically, but to sit in a room with them as long as the, the matter or the, the motto for this room is let's stop this war. Finally on Sudan, before we, we move to some other points, some Sudanese ha- have told me this this talk of uh, you know civilian government, a political process that it all sounds a bit naive um, as this war is going on between these two belligerents who do still seem in a sort of existential struggle, and you know, and, and many of the rest of Sudanese look like they're on the sidelines. What, what would you say to those who who basically say you know this time of pushing for Sudanese political process for Sudanese dialogue, it all basically has been it's being overtaken by the war itself. I think if you don't prepare for the day after, you might not be part of the day after. And I think this is really the risk I see. I think it's extremely important the political process is ongoing and the political actors are coming together. Of course, it's a terrible situation to be basically in exile, to be inside, to to care, you know, to struggle for, for surviving this war rather than uh, having, having a normal life. But I think... Um, waiting for the two belligerents to come to an agreement, um, hoping that they, you know, that basically they they see uh, the logic of, of stopping the war without having a political process, I think is is much more unlikely. And, and again, my main point is if you're not preparing for the day after, maybe this day after is going to be shaped without you. And I think that is a risk um, the, the Sudanese political actors um, should work against. Thank you, Aneta, for that long discussion on Sudan. Um, I'm going to uh, turn to some other topics while we have you on the show. 
turning to Ethiopia, it's obviously been a roller coaster of a past year. You know, you've had the Pretoria deal to end the war in Tigray. Um, Prime Minister Abiy's political coalition appears to keep shifting around. We still have the conflict in Oromia. And now we're seeing the serious unrest and conflict in the Amhara region. How worried are you? I mean, what I think what we see in Ethiopia is, of course, a continuation of a transition. And, you know, we come from a severe, brutal war. And I think that is a positive um, understanding. And I was in Mekele uh, just, just, you know, two weeks ago. I think we need to we need to see the positive that, yes, the COH is holding for now. I think it's also positive that the talks with OLA had started but yes, to consolidate um, this this country, to consolidate not just the political entities, but also the, the question of uh, the federal powers and the federal interests and in bringing it in back back into the fold, I think is is not going to be uh, done easily. But of course, the the very worrying situation is that we back in into you know state of emergency and human rights violations, and basically a military focused um, operation. And I think we would have hoped, of course, that, you know, the, the, the lesson from Tigray is go for talks, go for negotiations, settle the issues that are clear. I mean, the, the issues are not small. The, the question, there are many questions in terms of, you know, what is, what is the DDR process, um, the, the question of the future of the federal, of the regional um, militias, all of these issues, the question of the territories in, uh, in, in Western Tigray, these issues are there. And of course, they need to be taken very serious on the highest level. Um, but having a military operation first and foremost is not going to solve it. So I think, yes, there is concern, but I think we also need to look at what has been achieved. I think the readiness for, from the government to, to go in the, into the talks with the OLA was, was very positive. Um, and I think now these two sides also have to, do, to take these next steps on the OLA talks to also signal to the Amhara region um, Yes, there is, and not just signal, but also make sure that there is, you know, there is an opening for talks with the Amara, with the Fano as well. And I think this, these are clearly concerning issues and, and really problematic. But I think that's, you know, the, the message in, in Ethiopia from Tigray, from, from Oromia is it can be done and it has to be done. And to what degree do you think we should look at something that's a more holistic national process? Uh, the national dialogue is obviously the the tool that many inside and outside Ethiopia continue to call for. How, how much should we view these different issues, clearly all connected um, in several areas of the country, as something that that all needs a national solution? And how much how much should we be focused on these sort of regional talks, specific talks, talks with the OLA? with Fano. To what degree can we really expect at this point there to be something that looks like a more national solution to calm the situation? I think it's necessary to have a national solution. I think it's necessary to also, for, for the regions who were successful, also to push for this, because it's not helping to to do one by one. It really needs to come into, into bigger uh, engagement. However, of course, on the other side, it's not the same. You know, the, the two years war in Tigray is, is very different to what we see in, in the Amhara region right now. And the requests and the political interest by the OLA um, might be very different to, you know, what what the Amhara are looking at right now. So I do believe it's very clearly important to, to look at this nationally. I think the national dialogue can play a role, but of course, the national dialogue cannot solve 
solve the bigger questions, especially the the violence uh, and the the military uh, in, in encounters. So I think it really takes many levels. The national dialogue can be one of these aspects, but of course the engagement by the prime minister with all these regions to consolidate basically uh, the, the, the regional outreach, the, the, the federalism, what kind of federalism, how should that look like, who has what say, and how the territorial questions can be solved are key. Do you think the country is progressing towards the national dialogue? I think they are slowly progressing towards the national dialogue. I'm, I'm in Addis on, in, in Ethiopia on a very, re- very regular basis. My sense is right now the national dialogue has been very slow. It's maybe picking a bit uh, of, of speed, but of course there's always another current. Um, I think what we see internationally and how Ethiopia comes back into the fold, BRICS, uh, MBZ, UAE support, 17 MOUs, uh, you know, World Bank was there, IMF is moving. I think that is seen in others as the the relevant narrative. And my sense is sometimes this sidelines then what is really necessary to be done on the ground in consolidating this, this national uh, aspect of federalism and the, the, the national questions that are still contested. Mm. On these bigger questions, uh, including Ethiopia's impending ascension into into BRICS and its own dispensation versus the rest of the world, um, we've heard from those close to Prime Minister Abiy, as I'm sure you have, a, a grievance that they basically expected more Western financial economic support to flow in after signing the Pretoria deal. Do you, do you think that grievance is fair? I mean, when it comes to the EU, I think we have been extremely transparent from the beginning of the war. We've made it very, very clear the three conditions, not conditions, the three baskets, we called it, um, you know, basically humanitarian access, ceasefire and accountability. I think it was we've made a lot of progress. They made a lot of progress, of course, on ceasefire and humanitarian access. And I was there a couple of weeks back and we still continue to to debate on accountability. I think we've been very ongoingly supportive to the population of Ethiopia. Yes, we stopped uh, budget support, but we never stopped the support of, for, for the population in various ways, not just on the humanitarian side. So there is still the question of accountability, um, but but we've also, you know, we have a council conclusion from April um, saying very clearly there is an interest by European member states to re-engage. You know, I think we've been very transparent that it's not going to be an on-off that after the COH, of course, the implementation phase needs to start. And, you know, we, we're discussing uh, important and very costly issues such as DDR and uh, reconstruction. And we're moving. Um, I think it's clear the government might have expected something quicker, um, but on, on the side of the EU, I think we've, uh, we could have not been more transparent on what our expectations are, what we're ready to give, as well as an ongoing support for, for the people of Ethiopia. Hmm. I'm going to pivot to some broader regional questions. Since we've been on the topic of Ethiopia, the role of Eritrea continues to loom large. You know, Eritrea was not part of the Praetoria deal, even though it was a major part of the war. There's been a lot of speculation about Eritrean involvement in the Amhara region. EGAD has recently welcomed Eritrea back 
into the fold, uh, which was a, a major regional development. Um, I, I know the EU's own relations with Eritrea are, are troubled, to say the least, which is not a <laughs> unique situation. But from your regional consultations, how are states thinking about how to resolve this, this lingering dilemma of how to deal with Eritrea and, and President Isaias? I mean, what I see is, you know, there is an opening by the region uh, by inviting uh, Eritrea back into EGAD. And I think now the ball is in, in the court of, of Eritrea. Are they, are they using this? Are they using uh, the invitation by the regional uh, states to, for, for them to basically play a role in, in regional aspects uh, again? I think we've seen maybe a slow beginning. I think right now it really depends on how Eritrea is, is you know, is fulfilling this role. Is it fulfilling this role? Is it playing a part in, in regional engagements? Um, and of course, we 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 have the lead of the of the region there. I think, of you know, on on the question of the direct neighbors, um, that might be uh, much more difficult to sort out. Um, but I think if you know, when when I go back to to the EU initial initiative of the Horn of Africa initiative, that came from this aspect, definitely shaped by the EU's own experience that if you have a regional engagement where you have regional economic integration, this is not only helping the region to come together, but it's also helping to prevent further conflicts. And I think that was our initial idea for the Horn of Africa initiative. And Eritrea joined again the Horn of Africa initiative earlier this year. And I think that's something we are looking forward to, to see if there if there is a potential to have Eritrea playing a part in cross-border regional economic dimensions in trade between uh, Eritrea and its neighbors? Can Eritrea, you know, in the future play a role uh, in, in food security in the region, given that they have, um, you know, very important uh, resources in terms of fertilizer? I think these issues are, are important for the region to discuss with Eritrea. Is it already moving? I don't I'm, I'm not too, you know, hyped on this right now, um, but I think if the region can do it, I think it's positive. But that's not, you know, that's not the only picture. I think, of course, we we are, we are quite concerned about Eritrea's role in Ethiopia. Um, but again, it needs to be Ethiopia, and you know, Addis solving this issue uh, with Asmara. So, so moving on to the, the the GERD dam in Ethiopia, I just wanted to ask you about it quickly because, of course, talks have been stalled for a very long time. Um, but we did recently see this meeting on the sidelines of a Sudan summit uh, in Cairo in July, in which Abiy and Sisi met, and, and that was followed through with the first formal talks on GERD that we've seen for a while, though they didn't seem to make any breakthroughs. What do you think it would take to finally unlock? that process and and make any progress towards either a resolution uh, of the dispute or 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 something that at least appears like a less tense uh, standoff over GERD. I think it's a good beginning. I think it's a good beginning for the two sides to meet. I think of course it would be good to see the the next step of the talks uh, moving to have the two delegations meeting on a on a regular basis, you know, basically to ease the tensions, to have much more information sharing. I think there is potential right now. The window is open. Um, I would I would limit my expectations in terms of you know uh, a result coming out soon and a result that can serve both sides' interests. But I think we can all do something to support um, easing the tension on the on what is necessary in the coming years for the three countries. Um, 
you know, Ethiopia, Sudan, and, and, and Egypt. And I think that is something, if, if these talks between Ethiopia and, and Egypt can bring an opening to, you know, joint investment from outside the Gulf, other places, where we're looking at energy diversification for Ethiopia, where basically the, need, the Ethiopian need for energy is clear, it's undisputed, it's growing. Um, what can be done in terms of alternatives to hydro? What can be done in terms of um, uh, water management and water harvesting in Sudan as well as in, in Egypt? All of these issues are key. And I think, yes, the GERD is important, but it's it's as important to look into the needs, the coming needs, looking at the demographies, looking at you know the energy, the water, uh, the food that is that is necessary to be produced in this region for for the coming years, and what can be done on this. To touch quickly on Somalia, we're already seeing some African Union Atmos forces uh, begin to withdraw, hand over bases ahead of the deadline to completely pull out by the end of next year. Meanwhile, we've had the Frontlines States Initiative of Somalia's immediate neighbors vowing to assist the ongoing offensive against al-Shabaab. How do you see the regional fight against al-Shabaab evolving? How do you see this all working? I mean, I think, you know, we I think we're still very positive on on the engagement by Hassan Sheikh. Um, when he started, I think his plan in terms of having a comprehensive approach towards uh, al-Shabaab against al-Shabaab and degrading them militarily at the same time, uh, working to align the political factors, you know, FGS, FMS coming closer together and having uh, having an answer on governance and, you know, the visibility of the state uh, to to its, its, uh, its citizens. I think these aspects are extremely important. We see, of course, the, the phase two now moving. Um, I think where is less clarity, where, where we have less clarity is the black line uh, operation and the frontline states aspect. Because um, a couple of months back, it seemed like the, the two frontlines, I mean, the three frontline states, but uh, especially a larger troop contributing uh, aspect by Ethiopia and, and Kenya, that doesn't seem to be the case as was planned maybe a couple of months ago. But of course, both countries are hugely concerned by the spread of al-Shabaab, you know, beyond the borders of Somalia. So I believe it's still very important to have the, the, the direct neighbors to play increasingly a role and i think uh, you know we also need to sit and, and and discuss how this can all look like in terms of this bigger transition that we're discussing with the somalis of course also with the african union and and the un and others how can this bigger transition really look like yes you know moving out of atmis slowly slowly but what does it mean in terms of building up the capacities of the somalis can when and how can they take a lead of their own security structures what is the role of the frontline states and i think you know again we need the somalis to to have uh, to give us the, their understanding and i think we need to have a, a coordination on this what are the aspects we need to look at short term what do we need to look at in the next half year? And then, of course, long term. I think bits and pieces are coming together. Are they moving as planned? Maybe not. Um, but I think the direction is still the right direction. Stepping back even 
further to the Red Sea arena, if you will. Um, Saudi Arabia is still planning on hosting an Arab-Africa summit later this year, and there is still talk of a Red Sea Council summit, perhaps on the sidelines of that. You yourself and, and other Western diplomats you know, in, engage Gulf countries a lot now about developments in the Horn. The, the Gulf is obviously a major actor in Sudan, in Somalia, basically everywhere we, we look. What insights have you gathered on this sort of new emerging regional order, if you will, um, from your conversations with Gulf actors? And and is there a way diplomatically to make perhaps all of this feel a bit less chaotic? Uh, That's a good question. I think what we see and, you know, if we if we focus on the on the Red Sea right now, I think the Gulf states, especially Saudi Arabia, of course, is 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 there, you know, they are. Uh, mediating on in Jeddah, they they have helped a lot in the, in the beginning of of the evacuation, uh, you know, in terms of humanitarian help. So, f- for the Saudis, it's clear Sudan is very very close. Uh, the the Red Sea is not a big sea. It's not, uh, you know, uh, it's not the Indian Ocean. It's the Red Sea. It's almost tangible. What you, what you your neighbors, uh, you know, what's happening to your neighbors on the other on the other shore. So I think we see. Um, the Red Sea coming back into the focus, of course, for the EU and, and our member states, the Red Sea is more of a focus since the since the war of aggression of Russia in, in Ukraine, because, of course, our energy diversification, LNG shipments, all of this, underwater cables, all of this goes through the Red Sea. So for us, it's a, it's a hugely important nexus, but of course, also shipping lane freedom of navigation is key to us. So we would like very much uh, for the for the Saudis um, and, you know, the, the, the Egyptians to, to start launching this uh, Red Sea Council. But I do believe right now we do see, you know, bits and pieces on, on both sides of the shore where we do have concerns, but also positive aspects. We have concerns by, you know, coming back what we discussed in the beginning, this, this belt of coup of coups from almost the Atlantic uh, throughout the Sahel to the Red Sea. So that is really a concerning issue, including a concerning issue for maritime security. So the Red Sea is is part of a security, a critical security nexus that is not getting easier. Therefore, yes, it's more important to have uh, to have a coordination from the from the countries in the region, our position has always been we're looking at this larger um, in terms of what countries are affected by the Red Sea and what countries are affecting the Red Sea. So we've been working with the with EGAD on on the Red Sea. We've been uh, you know looking into our own CSTP missions, as you know, Atalanta and others. Um, but I I do believe there could be a better coordination, and so I'm hopeful that um, you know this can this can be done with the Red Sea Council. Uh, hopefully being launched this year. Because of the timing of this interview, we're we're recording this on Friday, but when this is released, uh, it will probably be in the middle or right after the Africa Climate Summit, which uh, is being held in Nairobi. Um, Obviously, African countries are suffering from a problem that they did not contribute to. What is the EU doing to assist the Horn countries to respond to these climate disasters, and, and is it enough? I mean, that's a question, you know, we have full departments. I mean, we have hundreds of people in the EU working on these issues. My, in my role, in my capacity, the question is much more to look into the nexus. You know, what is it, 
what does it do to this region um, if we're looking into the future of, let's say, the climate change uh, affecting Somalia, affecting South Sudan? Is it, uh, you know, what kind of movements of population is it going to bring? What kind of future risks could come along and how could we mitigate this? And I think one one aspect, of course, from the EU side is is uh, the Global Gateway and the Horn of Africa Initiative, um, very strongly focusing on regional economic integration, connecting the region to each other, helping the region to basically um, be much more you know effective to connect the the producers to the markets, the markets to the consumers in this region, not necessarily production in the region and then extraction to to the outside. So uh, for the more specifics, you will see uh, Ursula von der Leyen joining the the climate summit here. Uh, So the highest level representation of the EU. So her side of the EU and many others in the commission are working on these aspects. Um, But I think from from our perspective, in in terms of regional connector, uh, the, the, the question is what kind of future risks do we see and how how can we how can we mitigate these risks a final question to to wrap things up and i think you this has been obviously a very wide-ranging um very interesting conversation you're doing your job at a very interesting time regionally uh globally it's an increasingly fragmented world um obviously the region itself is going through some real historical shifts that'll be you know written about for a very long time Is your job getting harder? Is diplomacy getting harder? It looks like responses to these crises, they they look increasingly more more complicated, uh, more ad hoc. I'm just wondering how you see sort of the job that you hold and and diplomats' jobs more generally. How do you see that changing as as the world is, is shifting? I think that's that's the aspect. It's changing and it's shifting. I'm not sure if if it's getting more or less complicated. I think it's shifting in various aspects. Of course, we're looking at a multipolar world. Uh, we're looking at a world where multilateralism is is you know basically has has problems where we have uh, crisis in multilateralism. You look at the UN Security Council, um, and and you don't see this to be the body right now that can make uh, you know the decisions or that can bring the solutions to to all, at least in, in the region we're talking about, to all of these issues. So I think, yes, there is a shift. Um, on the other hand, I think if we compare it to 40, 50 years ago, of course, you have many more voices in engaged. So it's not just an elite, elite discussion we're having, uh, civil society, women, everyone has much more of a voice in, in decision making. I think this makes it uh, of course, more broader makes it sometimes more complicated, but I think it also makes it more sustainable. So I think there is a shift in, in international pl- diplomacy. I think it's from you know from from the starting point uh, that we don't have a two polar bipolar world. We have a multipolar world. Of course, that makes it very much different. And of course, the shift in 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 interests. Um, I think coming from the EU, we are trained very much to find, you know, uh, to find common ground in in very long and difficult negotiations. Because of course we don't have, uh, you know, one one country uh, leading. We have uh, we have uh, constant negotiations. Our decisions are based on negotiations. For many other countries, this is a awkward situation. For us, it's uh, it's the everyday work we do. And so, to me. I think I see I see diplomacy moving in this direction. You have to have much more negotiated outcomes rather than uh, decisions between two sides. Uh, so it, it might look more fragmented. I wouldn't think it's more fragmented. I think it's really uh, a broader 
more negotiated, a broader spectrum of uh, of actors uh, that need to be considered and consolidated and, and consulted. And I think, yes, it's it's different. Definitely, it's different. And of course, looking at the Horn, um, you know, there is such an up and down. And you would hope that after a conflict like in Ethiopia, uh, the Horn could consolidate and can could really also see its own potential, see its its potential for its own population, its potential in terms of having a joint and common security architecture, its potential in regional economic integration, its potential in bringing, you know, opening their their borders to their to their populations, opening their trade uh, to their to their neighbors. Um, but that's not the case. So yes, we 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 work with what what's there, and we hope uh, to bring it to what could be there. Uh, th- thank you, Netta, for giving us so much of your time, um, being so willing to to share all these the, these insights um, with us at this time. So so thank you very much. Thank you. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 